As we now come to hear your word read and preached, we thank you so much for your word that gives life, that is our guide in life, that teaches us more of who you are and how you act. Lord, encourage us, teach us and equip us through your word this morning. Prepare our hearts for hearing and receiving your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And this morning's reading is from the first chapter in Colossians, the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.
Well, those are precious words, aren't they? And we, as we look at these words, we, uh, we reflect on how they are for our life and for our hope and future. They're, they're for our very existence. Now, um, those of you who uh, know that I, from, from previous times when I've preached, I very rarely get organised in time to get you a, an outline. I thought, why change the pattern this time? Um, but instead you have the passage reprinted for you. That's even more useful, perhaps, than an outline from me. Let, me. let me pray as we start. Lord, we come before you with words that you have spoken for our edification, uh, for, a challenge, for challenging us and for making us truly wise. And so we ask for your help with us this morning in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, question, where, where are you up to in your Christian life? Some of you are long-term disciples. Uh, others are fresh new believers. Welcome, isn't it exciting? Um, others are still thinking about it. But as I think of, about Trinity Church Victor as a, a, a local church, with all of your variations and the different people and the different stages and so on, and yet you have a common identity and a common story. As I think about you, I think of you a little bit like the Colossian church, actually. Uh, the recipient of this letter from the Apostle Paul. Now, there are some obvious differences. They were gathering 20 centuries ago in what is modern-day Turkey, speaking very different languages to what we speak, much, much poorer than us, uh, much smaller than us, and of course they are kind of pioneers of what it is to be a local church. That concept has only really existed for maybe two decades, and they're thinking, well, what even is a local church? So there are, there are some differences between us and them, but also I think there are some things that we have in common with what we might call St. Epaphras's in Colossae. Firstly, there's genuine faith here, isn't there? I'm sure you've seen it. Well, there was in Colossae as well. Secondly, there are genuine risks here to your faith. Well, it's the same in Colossae. Thirdly, thirdly, the pathway through those risks to long, rich, persevering life as a Christian for us is Christ. Well, guess what? Same for the Colossians. God's better way was on view for them just as it is for you. I guess what I'm trying to say is this letter is for you. And as Paul says in chapter 2, Verse 5, I delight. What are the sort of things you delight in? You know, catch a great big fish one day or delight in a really great conversation or I don't know. What delights your heart? Well, he says, I delight to see how disciplined and firm your faith in Christ is. That's what he thinks is really delightful. And I agree in relation to you. Now, this is not a crisis letter. Colossians. But it is still a vitally important letter, and he's showing, he's writing to show them the path forward for the Christian life. Which way are you going? What are you clinging to? God's better way, which is Christ. 
Paul almost definitely didn't have the bicycle analogy that we have, that you need to be pedaling forwards so that you don't fall off, and yet he's making the same point in this letter. The Colossians are on a journey, just as we are. It's an excellent journey, and here's the key point. Just as they began their journey by receiving Christ as Lord, well, they need to continue that journey rooted and built up in Christ. And that's actually the point of, about a very key verse that you'll come to in a few weeks' time in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, which just says just that. Continue in Christ, just as you began in Christ. Let's get that in our heads and our hearts. We're talking here about the journey of maturity, Christian maturity. And it brings me to an awkward question. Are you excited about talking about Christian maturity? Uh, because I, to be honest, I, I think we sometimes struggle over these sort of things. Um, I think we'd prefer like a dramatic conflict or something that Paul is writing to us about or some kind of dangerous issue to be warned about. You know, in Galatians, he says, you foolish Galatians. And we think, oh, that sounds fun. I wonder what, wonder what that's about. Or to the Corinthians, he says, shall I come to you with a whip? Oh, okay, I want to read on. But what about Colossians? Is there any drama in Colossians to excite you about this, this journey to maturity? Well, don't worry, you are going to get the drama. He is going to wow us about Jesus. He wants us to grasp fully who Jesus is. Next week, you're going to hear these extraordinary words about Jesus from verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, the heir over all creation. This is Jesus. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. And I don't know if you've noticed these, the next three words. All things were created and for him. Did you know that? That everything exists for Christ. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. So who are we talking about here? Jesus, the, the humble, gentle, suffering servant of God? Yes, that Jesus. Don't underestimate him. Don't undervalue him. Don't miss the big picture of being a Christian. In fact, don't look anywhere else as a Christian because everything holds together through Jesus. Everything exists for him. And then as you continue through the letter, Paul's going to say more extraordinary things about Jesus. He's going to say, Christ is in you. He's the hope of glory. Christ is the one we proclaim. He's the one who brings us to maturity. He gives powerful energy to Paul. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. All the fullness of God lives in Jesus. And so on and so on. I could, I've got a list here. I'm not going to read the whole lot for, because of time. But that's where this letter is heading. There's going to be no shortage of drama for you. And it raises two questions for me, which we'll look at for a little bit. Question one, why does he think the Colossians need reminding about Christ? And does that apply to us too? Do we need reminding about Christ? And the second question is, 
If this letter is all about the centrality of Christ, then why is that not clearer in these introductory verses that we're looking at today? And we'll get there. So firstly, question one, why does Paul think that the Colossians need reminding about Christ? And does that apply to us too? Once again, I want to skip ahead a little bit um, to one verse in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. He's going to give this church a spiritual warning. They are to watch out for hollow and deceptive ideas that depend on false foundations. Now, we're talking about Jesus. Guess what? Jesus said the same thing about himself. Remember that parable of the the wise man and the foolish man in Matthew 7? They're building their houses, and the one who builds his house on the rock He's the one who actually is building his life on Jesus' words. He's the one who endures the storms. But the one who builds his house on the sand is the one whose house falls with a great crash. And the reality is that philosophies and worldviews are bound everywhere we go. There are ideas that are pushing into our minds if they're based, if they flow out of following Christ, then they're solid. And you can bet your life on them, brothers and sisters. But if those ideas that you hear, the conversation topics, the philosophies, do not flow out of Christ, if they flow out of human principles or other spiritual principles, they are flimsy and they're dangerous and they can cost you your life. Don't be taken captive, he says to the Colossians. Well, does this apply to us too? Absolutely. This is, this is risk area. It's not saying don't listen to unbelievers, they don't understand anything. It's not saying we can ignore anything that a non-Christian says or that we can ignore practical wisdom for life or that we shouldn't use our brains and that people who are not Christians shouldn't use their brains to think and to do research and things like that. No, 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 the warning here that I think this letter is addressing at is the warning of being taken captive by these ideas. What are the ideas that actually energize us, the things that we think about at night, the things that we talk about, the the causes we prioritize, The politics, is it based on the lordship of Christ? Is our morality, our sense of right and wrong, based on Christ or just on our own instincts or on the arguments of family and friends? I do think this is a significant challenge for us. We might go about thinking that, you know, because we're pretty ethical people, we're pretty moral people, that that makes us Christian or that's the thing that defines us as Christian. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Being a Christian is all about Christ. And unless Christ fills our view, we don't see the world clearly. He is like our spectacles. You're foggy, you're clear. 
So, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you over the next, I think it's 10 weeks or so that we're looking at this, to read it multiple times, to read it carefully, to read it honestly, to read it repeatedly, and it's going to have a vital and powerful impact on us as a church. Christ must be everything for us. If we're going to be obsessed about anyone, obsession about Christ is a healthy obsession. It's a life-giving obsession. It's who we are, brothers and sisters. So that leads me to the second question I've been pondering. That is, if this letter is about the centrality of Christ, then why isn't that a little bit clearer in the introductory verses that, we've been, that we're looking at today? Well, we've read it, and you would have seen Jesus' name in there, and you would have seen reference to the Son as well. But what is this passage doing? Paul is, in these early verses, gently making connections with a church he's never met. And he's showing them that there is a pathway. They need to be on it. Where is it all heading? What's so good about it? So where did this church come from? Paul has never been there. He has spent a couple of years, though, ministering in the church in Ephesus. That's the church to which the book of Ephesians is written. And Epaphras was part of that ministry with Paul. And then Epaphras has brought the gospel to these people in Colossae. And Colossae is about 160 kilometers from Ephesus. And then Epaphras has gone back to Colossae and he's told Paul about them. And Paul is delighted. Wow, here's a church and I haven't even been there. And there's real faith going on. And that's exciting. It's delightful to Paul. And so he writes to encourage them. And the way he's going to encourage them is to fill their minds with Christ. But how does he go about making first contact with that church? How does he build a relationship with him when all he has is a stylus and some papyrus? Well, some of that relationship building is done in the greeting. He says, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Paul's status as an apostle is important. He's saying, I'm an authorized leader and teacher of the Church of Christ. I'm not self-appointed. In fact, I'm writing on behalf of Christ and of God the Father. That's significant. Verse 2, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. He's not writing to the rabble in Colossae, but to the saints, the faithful. And he greets them with God's grace and peace. It's not unlike his, the way he starts the letters that he writes to churches that he knows much better. And then he pours his heart out towards them, his apostolic love and concern, just as, he, as if he did know them really well. And this is the unique way and the wonderful way in which only Christians talk. We pray for you. 
Think about it. We pray for you. It's not show. It's not meaningless politeness. There's something real going on in Paul's own private and spiritual life far away in his prison cell. I pray for you. I've never met you, but I pray for you. The great apostle Paul is bringing them and their needs before God. What a lovely expression of fellowship to pray for each other. We pray for each other, don't we? I I hope you pray for each other. I'm sure, I know your leaders pray for you. And Paul's prayer begins with thanksgiving. In fact, thanksgiving is a very strong theme throughout this letter. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Thanksgiving is such a a beautiful thing, isn't it? If you're new to the faith, maybe it's a a bit of a, it sounds a bit jargony. But, you know, it's an expression of thanks, giving thanks. Uh, But it's an expression of love, isn't it? And I, I think it's an expression in two directions. There's a direct expression of love towards God the giver. Thank you, God, for these people. Thank you. And that's an expression that I... What you've given me is good. In, in giving me knowledge about these people, that's good, Lord, and I, I thank you for that. It's an expression of love to God. Do you see that? But it's also indirectly an expression of love towards the people because as he thanks God for them in his prison cell, he's thanking God for this group of people who is so valuable that it's worth just talking to God about them worth bringing them to mind, worth bringing their concerns before God. So his thanksgiving homes in on three key elements. You may have seen them as we read the passage, faith, hope, and love. And Paul has heard that they, they have these, and he gives thanks to God for that. Verse 4, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that's come to you. So just imagine a diagram. So the diagram starts with a a circle over here or whatever, the message of the gospel, right? And, And an arrow pointing from the message of the gospel to the thing that that message creates. It's another box here. And that is hope. The message of the gospel creates hope. And this, this is the hope stored up in heaven for you. And that's the fullness of life. And it's eternal rich life that the gospel tells us about. And then you've got two arrows coming out of hope. One of them goes to faith in Christ. And the other goes to love for God's people. You see that picture? See how that works? You've got the gospel, which creates hope that's held in heaven for us, which creates faith in Christ, and it creates love for all of God's people. That's the dynamic that Paul is seeing, and it's the dynamic that's at work in us as well. The gospel is telling us 
that this is the, the dynamic that comes from, that is typical to the church. Hope, then faith and love. Now, it's not an isolated exception to the rules, not some weird thing that's happening in your town only, Colossae, verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. This dynamic is happening everywhere, Paul is saying. It's an unleashing of the Holy Spirit across the whole world. Wherever the news of Christ is preached, what happens is the Spirit creates hope. The Spirit creates faith and love for God's people. It doesn't happen to everyone who hears it. But everywhere this message goes, it happens. When Paul says all over the world, I wonder, you know, I wonder how many Christians he's talking about. This is probably written around the year 60, somewhere, give or take. And we know that the growth of the church was explosive. If you've looked at the, the, the details in Acts 2 and Acts 4, you'll know that the number of believers went from 120 in Acts 2 to, in Acts 4, do you know how many? 5,000. Bang. Wow, that's an explosion. And then some estimates suggest that by the end of the first century, there may have been as many as 1.4 million believers, just under 1% of world population. By the year 500, this has grown to about 20% of the world's population. And today, about 32% of the world's population calls themselves Christians. This is at work all around the world, isn't it? That's exciting. Does that, does that excite you to know that there's something real going on here? It's actually globally relevant there's real power in this. Now, you know, are all these people mature in Christ? I doubt it. But I wonder if that's the kind of thinking that is behind this letter. That the gospel goes out and it creates this faith, hope and love. And yet people need to grow and they need to continue. They need to deepen. They need to mature. I was talking earlier about our second pillar under, under, under our mission there. You probably can't read it, but... Um, we'll need to do this a bit bigger next time. Um, but Christians, uh, we equip Christians as leaders in the church and the world. Another way to say this is that CMS wants to prioritise discipling leaders. And that's the work of each of the partner missionaries that we were talking about before. The Davises have been discipling leaders in the student ministry in Tanzania. Francis has been discipling leaders in the Anglican denomination in Chile. The Rose have been discipling leaders through George Whitfield College for those 14 or 15 different countries across the African continent. But what are they actually doing? What are these CMS missionaries aiming to do? Yes, they teach theology, church history and Bible, biblical studies, all that sort of stuff. But at the heart of what they're doing it's this stuff that is now spelt out for us in the second paragraph from verse 9. Paul's not going to lecture the Colossians about this, about where they're heading, what needs to happen. In fact, once again, 
It's done in the context of that beautiful Christian thing called prayer. His prayer for them is in two halves. We've seen the first half, that is what you already have from God, faith, hope and love. And he gives thanks to God for that. And now what you don't yet have, what you need, he now asks God to give them. So what is it? What do they need? What do we need, brothers and sisters? And, do, and as you read this, think to yourself, do I really think that I need these? Because the scripture is telling us we do. Verse 9, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Have you ever thought that could be a good life aspiration? To be filled with the knowledge of God's will. But what are our life aspirations? For some people, it's, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to retire comfortably, live quietly, catch up on all the things I couldn't do when I was working. Oh, for me, I'm, I'm not at retirement age. I'd like to make a difference through my work make a positive impact on the world or through my volunteering. Ah, for me, I was thinking of pouring myself into my family and especially into the next generation. You know, there's lots of things that we aspire for and none of, nothing wrong with anything that I've just said there, but Paul is hinting at an even better aspiration for your life that you'd have knowledge of the will of God. That's the top goal the best thing a human can get. It'll bring more joy, more strength, more wisdom, more good living than anything else you could strive after. Knowledge of God. Prize that above all, brothers and sisters. Sell everything to get that says Jesus, the pearl of great price. And this is what God wants to give you. He wants, he, he is opening himself up to you so that you can know him. And Paul prays this. Now, often when we think about God's will, we think, you know, uh, you know, is this about you know, who I should marry or where I should work or what, where I should li live and that kind of stuff? That's just asking what's, God's, what's God got for me. We're looking beyond that, though. Who is he? What is he like? How does he think? What drives his heart? What's he doing in the world? What's my part in it? And if we tap into that, we flourish as human beings. It's what we were created for. So how do we get filled with the knowledge of his will? Back to verse 9. Through all the wisdom and the understanding that the Spirit gives. And then we'll read on. Here's the list of benefits that I mentioned a minute ago. This is where it's heading. This is what the Christian life should look like. So that, verse 10, you may live a life worthy of the Lord. And please him in every way. Do you long for that? Bearing fruit in every good work. 
not just doing a bunch of stuff from day to day, but actually growing like a tree and bearing fruit like a good tree does, a tree that's well nurtured. Growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, even in our weakness, according to his glorious might. Imagine that, God's glorious might. And that's the power that he is giving to you to enable you to live so that, we're at the end of verse 11, you may have great endurance and patience. Do they sound exciting? I don't know. I'm not excited by them, but boy, they're important. Endurance. <laughs> they're, they're exciting when you know that life is tough, though, aren't they? That, that's the thing I feel like I need. How do I endure this? And verse 12, giving joyful thanks to the Father, not resentful thanks, not um, obligatory thanks, but a life of joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. A fruitful life, strong, enduring, patient, joyful and richer than you could ever imagine. That is your life, brothers and sisters. Grab hold of it. Now, what is the basis of us being able to say all this? Paul always gives us the reason, the foundation for our belief. Verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When you come to Christ, you discover what's been going on in the background and what it means for you. There's been a great rescue and we need to know all about this and we need to dwell on this and never forget it because it changes everything for the rest of our lives. Do you remember the Thai cave rescue? It's a few years ago now, where uh, the 12 boys and their soccer coach were you know, stuck in the dominion of darkness. Can you think of a better example of the dominion of darkness than you know, K and a half into these caves? I'm sure the torches had run out by the time you know, several days had passed. They're just in the dominion of darkness. And then they are saved, they're rescued. And surely that rescue then becomes the defining reality of their lives. Well, brothers and sisters, we've been rescued. We were in that cave through the forgiveness of our sins, redeemed by God. Our sin, our desire to do life without God, to find aspirations that don't include him, that was the problem. And that was the dominion of darkness. And we've been rescued from that. And the thing about darkness is you can't see, but the gospel brings light so that you can see, you can, and you're brought into the kingdom of Christ. This is our new life. So then, wrapping up, if this letter is all about the centrality of Christ, why isn't it clearer in these introductory verses? Well, I think he's laying out the path where it's all heading. If you're a Christian, then you have hope faith and love, but you need to be on this lifelong path to God and the knowledge of his will that will make you fruitful and strong and enduring and patient and joyful and rich. Those are the things to pray for. But that path 
is Christ. He's busting to tell us about Christ. Because if you know Christ, you will know God. You will have this knowledge of God's will. If you ignore Christ, if you sideline him, if you downplay him, you will miss God altogether. That's the sharp edge of the Christian claim, isn't it? And so, you know, I already read verse 15, and I'm a bit sad that I don't get to preach on this next week, but bring on verse 15, hey? That's what he's exact, that's exactly where he's going to talk about Christ, to wow you with Christ. Let me finish with a story about the Purdies and their visas. Um, I don't know if you know the Purdies, if you've been catching up with any of the CMS events. We ran our event, uh, our annual online dinner just this week on the Wednesday night, and we actually prayed for the Purdies visas yet again. I don't have any news yet about whether they've received their visas yet, but it has been 20 months that they've been praying for long-stay visas in Chile, and they have to keep leaving the country. They had to go and spend six months in Argentina um, because these long-stay visas, they've got to just keep going with only short-term visas, in, out, in, out. How frustrating that is for them. And I thought to myself the other day, has God actually heard our prayers? Because we've prayed thousands and thousands and thousands of prayers across our branch for these visas. Has he actually heard them? I thought, of course he's heard them. He knows that they need visas if they're going to be there. And it made me realise, I wonder if there is actually an even more important thing that we should be praying for, for the Purdies. You know, there's mum and dad and they've got four little kids. They're, the twins are five years old. And, you know, they, they're moving countries multiple times a year is not easy. What do we need to be praying for? Yes, visas would be good. The Lord knows that. What do they need? They need patience. They need endurance. They need strength. They need joy. They need all of these things that Paul is saying. This is what he wants them to have. And so that's what we've started praying for. I mean, we've been praying for that all along, of course, but that's what they need, isn't it? And I think that's what we need as well. We need all of those things. And the answer is Christ, because Christ will fill our minds and hearts with the knowledge of God. Nothing better than that. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you know us better than we know ourselves. We thank you that you have stirred faith, hope and love in this community. And we pray now for ourselves that you would give us that knowledge of you. That you would take us, as we go through this letter of Colossians, that you would take us time and again to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that he has done, all, all that he is, all that he has won for us. 
Help us to dwell deeply on what you have done through Christ and what you are continuing to do as through your spirit. You point people to Christ. Please, Lord, point us to Christ and through us, point others to Christ that we may have these treasures. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.